Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I'm your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I'm here in Palm Beach County, and uh, Parker Rex is my guest today, and he's on the other side of Palm Beach County from me right now. We couldn't quite uh, line up the schedules to get together in person, but we've got this great online technology. So Parker Rex, welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Francisco. Glad to finally make it happen. Yes, and Parker, I think you and I met, I don't know, something like six months ago uh, or so, actually because of uh, a mutual friend of ours, Joe Russo. Uh, Joe's been on this podcast way back, I don't know, somewhere in the episode 30-something range. And now we're on episode, I think this is 128. So uh, this is uh, this is great, but I'm glad Joe could bring us together. I think we met at a, uh, uh, a Tech Hub South Florida event or something like that. Um, Silicon but- Valley Bank. <laughs> oh, it's Put a Silicon, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's funny because, yeah, we were, I think Joe is bringing people together with uh, different people who are entrepreneurs and people who are venture capitalists and, uh, just like introducing people. And, and so it's nice to meet a lot of entrepreneurs and uh, really great to hear your story. And I know I, I've been talking to you about maybe getting on this podcast for a little while. But, you know, ever since I, I met you, uh, you've even uh, charted a little different course uh, for over the last six months. But right now, why don't you tell our audience just a little bit about what you're working on right now? And then we'll get back to the beginning of your uh, story. Yeah, so the last... I guess six to eight months, I've just spent all of my time in the world of AI, as everyone is. There's a lot of grifters, be careful. There's a lot of people saying they're using AI when really it's just like statistics. But what I kind of got obsessed with is this idea of building a miniature version of yourself to do the tasks that you do. And so I've spent a lot of time programming and basically programming a, a miniature version of me. So web developer, and that's how I spend my time. And then on the services side and how it helps people is we build them high performance websites for their business that they ultimately sell more products or services, whatever their business is into. That's great. Well, you know, I know people have a lot of uh, different views of, of AI. And also we, I think a lot of people have a lot of different knowledge or even lack thereof of uh, what AI is doing and maybe some of the potential to kind of unleash. Some people are scared of it, like uh, like any innovation, uh, but we are going to get into that a little bit more. Uh, I also just love the idea here of being able to clone yourself. Uh, at, at least I know people <laughs> like you and I, Parker, we wish we could probably have two, three or four more of us uh, to get all the, the tasks done that we like to get done throughout the, the days and weeks. But uh, but let's let's go back to uh, the early days of Parker Rex because uh, first of all, where did you grow up, Parker? I know you're in West Palm Beach now. Uh, where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in uh, basically Delray Beach, Florida, and so Atlantic Avenue, little beach town, was there. Um, went to high school in Boca, and then went to FSU. I was I was such a bad student. I never took it seriously. Um, always just a self-learner, had zero discipline when it came to academics, ultimately went to a public school in Florida State, and then dropped out about a year and a half into it when my friend was starting a company. And it was actually, I was putting it on pause. 
And uh, it's been on pause ever since because that business worked out. So that's interesting. We got a guy here who's doing a lot of incredible stuff who has does not have a college degree. Right. Well, that's interesting because let me see. You're, you've been doing things since you were uh, at least uh, tinkering around with computers at least since you were 13. Tell us a little bit about what you've done in that realm. Anything from computers to gaming to the internet, websites, whatever, all the way up to AI. What, what, what has been that journey uh, of, uh, and, and how did it get started? Yeah, I think for the listeners, whatever you enjoy doing, and if you, you'll, you'll probably get good at it, right? And so for me, I enjoyed video games. I enjoyed actually tinkering with the video games to figure out how they work. So that led to some, I wouldn't even call it programming, but it kind of was. Um, and so that just kind of led me down this path of always like reverse engineering. Like, how does this work? Like, how does this, how does this like screen work? How does this camera talk to the computer? And just being curious. And so tangibly, I ended up modding some video games so that they would work the way that I wanted them to work. And then fast forward, I also got really into chemistry for some reason. Like I was obsessed with fireworks. So I was trying to figure out how that worked. Um, like how does the rocket move from point A to point B? How can I get the chemicals to make those? I started a whole YouTube channel about it. It was called Parker the Pyro. But there's been this theme throughout my my life, really, where if I'm interested in it, I'll go spend endless amount of time on it because it doesn't feel like work. And so, again, for the listeners, it's it's really like if you have something that you really like doing, you should try to make a living out of it because mm -hmm. you'll enjoy it more. And that's what it's all about. So what's the difference between, so I think that's a really good point. If you enjoy doing something and you can make a living out of it, uh, you're probably going to put in the hours, put in the work, but it's not going to feel like work. But how does that contrast with something like this? I'm just going to give you a wild example and we could probably play it out in more realistic examples, but maybe I'm really passionate about basketball and I want to make it work for a living and I want to play in the NBA, but only a, only a very few percentage of people can actually do that and, and achieve that skill level. So I, I think I'm good at it. Maybe I'm not as good at it as somebody else, uh, but I really love doing it, but I know, but it's not ultimately going to be something I can do because I'm actually not that good at it. Uh, but how would you react to something like that and, and, and how somebody in that kind of category could shift to doing something they like to do? Yeah, I think there's a, ton of different examples of this and sports is a good one right because it's like oh you have you know such a tiny percentage of people that can actually go and play and be entertaining to watch um and so then it's like okay well what surrounds the thing that i'm obsessed with like i may not be the ones actually like dribbling the ball and shooting it but am i an agent am i someone that's representing it am i someone that's doing a merchandising line? Am I trying to get involved at the MBA level where I'm interning there and trying to go up the corporate ladder enough to learn it such that I could do my own thing? It's adjacent. Um, so you can kind of like go down these paths, but you also need to have a little bit of like realism. Like I really like programming, but I don't think I'm going to be the guy that is, you know, coding self-driving cars. Like that's just not it for me, but there's a ton of other things within programming that make good money that have good, you know, work-life harmony and, and all that. So you got to just kind of like dive into it and map out what 
what's in that industry and you'll find opportunities. So I really love that you talked about that, you know, when you were young and you were kind of just tinkering around with computers and just trying to go backwards. How does this work? Because you, you said a great word, you were curious. And I think this is a, a great characteristic that many uh, entrepreneurs either have or should have uh, is, is that, that sort of almost a childlike curiosity, right? Uh, that you, um, you know, as we grow older, we sort of get a little more set in our ways. The, the world of reality, as, as we were just talking about, kind of hits yeah. us and maybe the curiosity uh, kind of fades. But um, how have you been able to maintain that level of curiosity in the things that you're doing and what has it kind of led you uh, to do? I think if you get comfortable, then you're stagnating. Like if you're not moving, you're dying. And that's an extreme way to put it, but that's true. And in entrepreneurship, I mean, this has been the tale of, of like I've lived this for like the last two years because we did a startup and worked on it for almost seven years and had a really awesome offer for an exit. We kept going. We still exited. It was great. Then after that, I'm like, oh man, like this is easy. Like I'm just going to start another thing. And I, I wasn't even the founder. I was just running all the product and a bunch of engineering people. I was very early there, but you know, you, I, I think to the point of curiosity and how you stay curious is you like you're in the arena of business and you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> like you, mm -hmm. you have to be able to like run through walls and staying curious just means like that day zero mentality. It's like, okay, like I might've done this thing in my past, but it does not matter. Like I need to just hit the reset button. In fact, that's one of Amazon's core values is day zero. Like Bezos like preached that for 25 years when he was, you know, leading the helm there is day zero. And so I think, you know, if you, it's not just curiosity, like you, it's not like the serendipitous thing where it's like, oh, I'm curious and I'm going to tinker. You have to have curiosity paired with like, okay, how am I going to pragmatically start generating customers? How am I going to turn this curiosity into a business? Because otherwise it's an expensive hobby. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Well, no, I love the uh, the day zero concept, and I I think that's really great because it doesn't matter if we've like failed at something or if we've succeeded at something, right? Uh, it's day zero, and and um, and I think for something like you know, it's really interesting. You mentioned Jeff Bezos. I didn't realize that was part of his philosophy that he preaches. But to think at such a successful company like Amazon, but in order to continue to be successful. You got to continue to innovate. You got to, you know, there's thing the, the world is constantly changing, a lot of new demand. So, so I like that he kind of uh, preaches that to his uh, to his employees. You know that we gotta we gotta find new ways of doing things. Today is day zero. Totally. But so so Parker, you um you got into gaming. Um, I saw I noticed what what was your actual other than uh, tinkering around with computers and. And, and, and starting the Py Parker the Pyro YouTube channel and all these sorts of things. What was your, uh, what would you consider sort of your first kind of real job? Could have been something as a kid, but something uh, yeah. where may maybe it was a W-2 or somebody at least paid you for it. Yeah, so my first money that I made, I worked at a grocery store when I was 13 and I had to get uh, like a work permit. Like when you're below 14, <laughs> you have to get like some weird thing um, from the city. But I would do that and I did that for like four summers and you'd wake up and you know, it, it was funny. It was like this high end, um, like produce section that was like mine. 
It was like, all right, like you're going to get there at 4 a.m. and you're going to unload the stuff, the raspberries and whatever the fruit is of the day and yank it off this truck and go and set it all up and then ideally sell all of it. And I was making like no money at the time, but that was, that was what I was doing. And then at night I was live streaming video gaming before there was Twitch or any of these other things. And I was starting to realize, I was like, wow, like, this is kind of cool. I have like dozens of people tuning in to watch me do what I'm already doing. And then I turned that kind of audience building. I didn't know what any of this is called at the time, but I turned that into basically like a, a community of fellow gamers. And, you know, you could pay a couple bucks a month to basically like be a part of the, the server that I would run where people play the game. So it was a pair of those two where it was, you know, by day, I guess by morning, I was doing the, the grocery stuff. And then in the afternoons, I was filming YouTube videos of like chemistry. And then in the evenings, it was this like, you know, let's play Counter-Strike, which is this first person shooter game. So it seems to me that uh, so interesting, you know, in the grocery store. Uh, but it seems to me that also all these things you were doing around that. You were you were learning very early how to build an audience in in all that you know. You mentioned the chemistry. Uh, I don't know. Was that the is that different than the pyro or is that the no? It's the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So it's it was like it was called Parker the pyro, but I would do anything from like how to make a, like a bottle rocket to how to I, I don't know. I had like fifty how to videos, but all of it involved chemistry. Yeah. I'm almost surprised that YouTube allows people to uh, to, to, to do that. <laughs> I got kicked off. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> was it because you were a minor or just because you were making videos about blowing things up? <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, that's why I'm like sensitive even on this pod. I'm like, well, what do I talk about? Um, I'm not an arsonist. I was, you know, I was like 14 years old and I was making these videos where I was like, whoa, like I can light a thing on fire and it makes all this smoke. And um, I made one video that was teaching people how to make thermite, which is like, from my perspective, this cool thing where you light it on fire and it's, it burns hot enough to, they use it to melt railroads. And so I learned about it because I was like, whoa, like I'm obsessed with like these experiments that I'm running. Like, this is cool. I'm going to make that. And I was teaching people how to do that. And then ultimately they're like, no, <laughs> like, yeah, can't be doing that. So you go off to Florida State. I know you don't finish, uh, but somewhere around that that age, right, between 18 and 20, you started uh, really becoming uh, interested in, in music production and getting into that area. Tell us a little bit about about that realm, how you started, what you, what you did. Yeah, the music thing, um, it was basically like I had heard a bunch of – I had gone to a bunch of concerts when I was in high school – and like from going down to Miami and I would listen to the sounds and I was like, this is so simple. Like it's just the same chord over and over. Like I could do this, but same, like same deal where it's like devils in the details, like way harder than you think. <laughs> and so ultimately um, just try to figure out like, okay, how, how do you do this? Like how does music theory work? Um, how do you program a bunch of chords that make people want to dance on a piano roll? And so got super into that. Um, and it also taught me a little bit of like how marketing works because music's impossible to make money with. And so I was trying to like promote the songs because you make the product and you're like, here it is. The world's ready. 
And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, if you make it, they will come is not a thing. Like you have to then be like, okay, like let's put this in motion. So yeah, I, I basically just got a copy of what's called Ableton Live. It's like garage band on steroids. And I just, it was just what I got obsessed with for uh, a few years. And then I realized at the end of it, I was like, okay, well, if the light at the end of the tunnel is to live in nightclubs and like be around all this that I, I don't know, it wasn't for me um, because I started like spinning at, at different places. Like I played my first gig in Miami and I was like in this, like, were you club, a DJ? Like, yeah. So I would produce it. Like I'd make the music and then I'd go play it. And so when I went to play it for the first time and I'm like in this club and I'm just like, this is just not it. Like, I don't know, but it was, it was definitely interesting to learn because it stays with you forever. Like these skills, like now when I hear music, I'm like, Oh, like 16 bar build up, And then now it's going into a bridge and this is how to make that sound. So. Yeah, that's interesting. So what was the, uh, the opportunity or the cause that made you break from, uh, from your, take a break, take a pause, which you're still in, uh, from, uh, from Florida state university. I don't think anyone should go to school if it's below a certain threshold of the like academic standard, meaning like there's certain schools that have brand value and there's certain disciplines that it's required, but there's just, it, all of education is getting flipped. Um, and you can go and speak to folks that are at Harvard, that are at Stanford, um, and they'll say the same thing. It's just, there's just such a small selection of schools that I think actually matter. And I think that it's going more and more in that direction. And so for me, it was obvious because, you know, I got a glimpse of, of what it was to operate a business and what it meant. Like I would go to school and it's like, you're basically a bunch of 18 and 19 year olds. Your brains are soft. You're not developed. And you're trying to be told like, Hey, let's go into debt to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And I would go there and I was in a fraternity and you're just drinking and you're like, it's just not a productive time. And so in the summers I would go and I'd intern with my cousin, um, his name is David Littlejohn. He had learned from all of these Titans in the advertising uh, industry, like uh, this guy, Alex Bogusky, who he had done the truth campaign and the campaign for Domino's Coca-Cola, all these people. So I had a great person to learn from in the summers, did that for three summers while I was still at FSU. And it was like, I was a different person. I was totally different. And I think that everyone has different personalities and it's trying to find which one you like the most and that you want to kind of like permeate across different um, parts of your life. Like I had a lot of discipline in the summer when I'd go and hang out with my cousin and work for him. And then I'd go back in the fall and it's like, all right, like here we go, like frat Parker. And I'm like, this is not it. Like this is not going to make me fulfilled, not going to make me happy, not going to make me uh, like fulfill all my dreams, my ambitions. And so one one time I had come back to Del Rey and it was my sister's boyfriend at the time, Jason, had started a company called Delivery Dudes. And it was just this this hobby of a company at first where literally it was like, hey, let's go deliver pizzas for places that normally don't, like this place called Sazio's in Del Rey and this place called Cut 432 that serves steak. It was Jason's idea and, and I had kind of helped him just deliver pizzas, literally. It was like a summer gig. And at the time, I in the summers, I was like, throwing parties and making money doing that. And I'd recruit all my friends to come be drivers. And it just kind of like didn't die. Like his business didn't die. It just, it wasn't like, oh, this is gonna be a business. It just didn't stop. So every time I came back to Del Rey, I was like, oh, like now you guys have like red shirts and like you got like a <laughs> uniform. And now like, well, you're actually, that's a lot of money. 
And so then one one semester, I was like, I'm going to just work for you for one semester. Like, I just, I want to, I want to work with this designer named Brian Waterman because I, I watched what he was doing. I had been delivering pizzas for them every time I'd come back in town and the money was great at the time. I was making like 30 grand or something. And I was like, wow, this is money. Um, but I was 19. And so then I just got addicted. I was like, you know, I got a glimpse of what it could be. And I, again, it has to go back to like what you like. And for me, I love learning. I'm a knowledge sponge. And so at FSU, it was like a, so like flatlining. It was like, oh, I'm learning how to drink a lot of natural light. <laughs> like I'm learning how to like, like I didn't have the discipline and like school could be great if you're super disciplined and you go to one of those good schools. But then I'd go back into business world and, you know, instead of flatlining, it'd be like very steep and be like, okay, like you can try to learn design. You can try to learn UX design. You can try to learn a program. You can try to, you know, basically generate more business and, and be as, as good as you want to. It was up to, up to me to make that decision, but that it was just obvious to me. Like there was no going back after that. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you, what were you exactly doing for delivery dudes? Yeah. Earliest days, I was literally, I ran that we had an internal store and it was called the red market. And what that meant was we had a, basically supplies for all of our drivers, all of our um, restaurants. So it, you know, it was basically like its own little entity within delivery dudes that we started to promote the company. And to, I mean, I literally have like a mouse pad on my desk that I still have, which is funny, but it's like, <laughs> you know, we had like probably like 50 different SKUs. And so that was one of my responsibilities in the earliest days was like, Hey, you're going to help design all of the t-shirts and all the apparel and the wraps for the cars and processing these transactions and dealing with buyers in Chicago to ship in, you know, we'd order like a pallet of, of pens. You'd get like a million of these. Right. And then you get them. And oh man, like for one territory, we didn't have the right phone number. So then you're dealing with those. And we had merchandise that was made in Amsterdam because we wanted it organic and you're dealing with PO orders. And so that was one part. The other part was basically learning design and then it evolved over time. So, okay, Parker, like, seems like you're getting pretty good at design. Like we need a website. Um, we need an app. Um, how are we? How do we not have an app yet? We were doing like thirty million in sales. Like, what? What are we gonna do? Yeah, who, I mean, because you kind of think this? of the app now, right? So, um, I I almost thought maybe they had something like that from the beginning, but that that didn't even exist then. And what was it? Just a phone number or something? It was a whiteboard. Yeah, so it was a whiteboard and a phone. And so, hmm. literally, like, I mean, this is like twenty fifteen. So we, I don't think Square was on the scene for payments. So. Food delivery was very different then. Like you'd walk around like this clunky. This was back in the prehistoric days of 2015, just just eight years ago. It's, just, it's amazing how things just advance so fast. Um, by the way, did did you happen to uh, work with a friend of mine named Evan Marcus? Evan, yeah. So Evan ran one of the territories in Miami. Midtown. Miami, yeah, Miami. I had Evan on this podcast to talk about it way back. Episode 27, I think it must have been around no 2015 or something. Uh, Evan had um, had been a student at Florida State University when I met him, and he was interning for an organization I worked for in uh, in Tallahassee. I didn't go to Florida State, but I I, uh, I worked for a public policy organization in Tallahassee for, for nine years, and eight of those years I was there. But anyway, so um, yeah, I remember Evan moving uh, to Miami and doing this and just catching up with him one time and saying, this is really interesting. Again, it must have been 
2015 because I maybe 2016. I think I started this podcast in 2015, so maybe about a year after I started, had him on. And uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I think he had become maybe like a franchise owner or something for Delivery Dudes or a co-owner or something. Um, so anyway, uh, but but that but that's interesting when you think about Delivery Dudes. Now I know it was like like you said it was um, it was doing okay, but it hadn't really quite taken off. But it was also in a market before like Uber Eats came in. Um, but it's interesting because I caught up with Evan maybe a year after the 2020 pandemic started. <laughs> and uh, he was talking about how, how, yeah, like maybe delivery dudes just, just a little before its time in terms of when he was working there, because it seemed like, you know, at this point, I think the pandemic was the tipping point because people were only eating, you know, takeout or whatever, going to the grocery store. They weren't able to sit in restaurants and eat. And then it just became more of a habit, a little bit quicker thing, right? For people to get Uber Eats or Delivery Dudes or whatever. So, but it seemed to me like Delivery Dudes was still very focused on local, um, uh, like local restaurants rather than like national chains and things like that. Uh, I'm not, I'm not really sure, but, uh, but really uh, kind of interesting. I guess you guys intersected during, during that time. And both of you had gone to Florida State as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean. It was great meeting with him. They ran, like I said, the Midtown off. But to your point about the food delivery business, first of all, I loved all the the founders of Delivery Dudes. It was Jason Koss and Ryan Sturgis, and then Peter DeBaptiste was um, like the third guy in in charge. And then it was me, and we had basically a really like tight group of guys running the executive team, and we'd sit together on Mondays, pretend like we knew what we were doing. And I was the <laughs> youngest by far, and I was very lucky to kind of be there with them, but. What I did learn post facto and, and kind of like about halfway through is that that particular business model, I mean, it's like razor sharp margins and very challenging if you don't raise institutional capital, which we didn't do. So we bootstrapped the entire business, which is really awesome. I think at our peak, we did about 73 million a year in GMV, which is total sales. And then I think by the time we sold, it was close to a quarter billion in total sales. Um, but, you know, through that, you, you just learn so much because we had all these incumbents that came in and, you know, we had this thing that happens very rarely in business where you don't have a lot of competitors. And there was like this period of time where it was like three, four, maybe even five years where like no one was around. And that, you know, kind of ethos of not raising money definitely hindered the performance and the total all uh, like outcome, the market cap of the company by the end of it, because it just, you know, that again, that type of business requires a lot of gasoline to go to that scale, to get the market share. You're basically, you have to be hyper growth um, and you'll be like deep in a J curve, lighting money on fire for a little bit, knowing that you're going to get, you know, every suburb across the country, like a DoorDash, for instance. Um, and so we, we kind of like target ourselves a little bit up market because we had to make the unit economics work. So our average ticket, I believe is like $47 versus you know, an Uber Eats is more like $11 and, you know, mm -hmm. they're just like losing, I think at one point they were losing $7 on every single order, which we just couldn't do, but they had the, the bankroll to do so. Yeah, that's interesting. So I want to also dive back into the, what you were talking about before being uh, at Florida State and, you know, you, you, you had some, uh, <laughs> So maybe constructive criticism, let's say, of, a, of of higher education, but particularly what you're learning or what you're not learning, and the 
also the kind of culture and lifestyle, like you said, you know, going back and, and drinking at the frat house and, you know, all these things, right. And kind of that culture that kind of permeates a lot of, uh, a lot of college, uh, campuses, college, college culture, but, um, maybe, uh, there's a lot of people doing that as well, but maybe there's a lot of people there that are, that are there to learn obviously, and trying to learn and trying to get a degree. So I'm, I'm, um, I, I mostly agree with you on the higher ed, but I, I do want to like throw it at a little devil's advocate here of, do you think that, um, you particularly have that feeling because you have this sort of like entrepreneurial, like, uh, kind of edge to you, like that you're, you want to be like building, growing, uh, things like that. And maybe the average college student doesn't really have, or even the average person, uh, doesn't really have that entrepreneurial mindset. Everyone has biases. I think that there's just enough data that shows the kind of the, there's just different tiers to schools, right? And so I think that like the bottom 95% of schools just aren't like that, that education is entirely commoditized, right? Like you can go on the internet. Like I took all of these MIT classes on computer science. I just went on YouTube. It's like capiche. And I didn't have to go, you know, a quarter million in debt to do that. And so I just think like, if you have extreme discipline, I guess that's the problem. Like, I understand the, the academic side of it, like trying to provide more structure for you, but it's just tough. Like, like you could get a better education by getting, like, if you wanted to go into, you know, computer science, you pay like $10 a month for Code Academy Pro. And you say, all right, I'm going to set my own curriculum from nine to five. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do, you know, three, two hour blocks and whatever the case is. Um, I just, I can't help but think that most of these schools just don't make sense. You know, it's interesting because you just said you got to have the discipline to do the, like the online MIT program, for example. Right. But uh, earlier in the conversation, you were talking about as a, as a 18 to 20 year old, uh, maybe you or others didn't have the discipline to like, you know, just focus on school and not do, you know, not, not have, you know, go up there for the party atmosphere or whatever. Um, so I don't know, at what point were you taking those MIT classes? Was this a little bit later, like a few years later, or, or was this while you were at FSU? Yeah, I mean, that was while I was a delivery dude. So it was like, I think it's just, you know, you make a good point. It's like your environment basically is, it's a giant variable in how you act. And so I just think for me, it didn't make sense. I'm not trying to cast judgment on others. I have my own thoughts, but it's, um, if you put yourself in an environment where you're around a bunch of builders and you don't always have to be like the number one person, like I wasn't the number one person at delivery dudes, I was an entrepreneur. So I had an opportunity to go work alongside an entrepreneur and gain a bunch of skills that would give me the confidence and the momentum to go and work on my own thing. So yeah, by no means am I, saying, you know, you're dumb if you go to college or something. I don't need to be, you know, polarizing. I just mean that it's um I I, I strongly believe that most of this education, because it's commoditized, will drastically change the way that we view colleges in the next decade. Yeah, you know, um one of the things I do in the the Fearless Journeys community is we have a book club and one of the books we recently read was Extreme Ownership by uh, Jocko Willick and Babin. And I mean, to me, that was one of the biggest lessons I got from that book was the importance of discipline and dedication. Um, and I mean, obviously, they're taking their experience of being uh, 
you know, on the battlefields of Iraq, uh, and and then talking about the extreme training you know these Navy SEALs had, and then bringing it back to a business mindset, right? And how can you how can you do that? So I th- I think that's so important, and I think a lot of times that's what's lacking in any educational environment. It could be something pre college, it could be uh, in college, uh, it could be just that lack of discipline and focus. And what's really important, but I also kind of come back to where your point is, I think we learn so much more through the act of doing, um, and maybe it's tinkering around with a computer at 14 years old. Uh, you know, maybe it's actually learning from an entrepreneur on the job at like delivery dudes. Uh, but I think it's just all those little things. And, and that probably, insp- I mean, I'm, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I just listened to your story. It seems like being in that environment versus being in a frat house or on a college campus up in Tallahassee, um, you know, you were probably a little more inspired to be like, oh, wow, look at this guy doing this great thing. I want to, how could I learn to do that? How could I level up? How, you know, what skills do I need to develop to kind of take myself to another level? And that maybe inspires you to go find this MIT, you know, course online that you're able to, uh, to dive into. Um, another another interesting thing, though, is when you're talking about the delivery of education, right? We have technology now that can deliver education for much less expensive, right, uh, cost. And, and so it's interesting because, but it doesn't necessarily come with the same piece of paper, right? Um, probably, you would probably have to physically enroll uh, in a normal kind of college program at MIT to get the, like, the MIT credential to hold up to somebody. I'm not really sure how it works with what you did online. You, you got, no, it's literally YouTube. Yeah. You're saying there's definitely differences, right? So it's like, there's a a half a dozen schools where that matters or it's like, okay, like for instance, if you're raising institutional capital and you have Stanford next to your name, boom, you're in the club or Harvard. Like, I don't want to touch those topics because it's just obvious. Like that brand value, hundreds of years behind it, like, amazing professors that and that's the quality right like it's dictated by the person that's teaching you the content so it's like why would i listen to someone that isn't who i want to be like if they're not in this in the field in the arena like why it just doesn't make sense to me like if i go to a school down the block here and i won't name them but it's like if i go somewhere around here and i walk into a class about like business finance or something and then i look at the parking lot it's like the two don't match versus if I go and I'm like at a Harvard or like one of these um, institutions where someone has been brought in to guest lecture and there's just a different, a different level. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, well, we've dived into that a little bit. So Parker, you um, tell me your path from delivery, dude, you didn't go back to school. I uh, stayed with them for a few years maybe, but uh, what was your next sort of step on your journey? Yeah, so Delivery Dudes was a seven-year stint. Uh, about halfway through it, we got a really nice offer. We kept going. I built a few companies while I was there, a few startup ideas, basically. Found myself at Y Combinator, pitching the founder at Gmail, which was very humbling. Um, he told me my idea was illegal. I was like, thanks for inviting me to Palo Alto <laughs> to tell me that. Thanks. And uh, it was funny, actually. We were at a dinner, and it was with the founder of this company called Figma. And they're trying to close a, a $20 billion deal with Adobe right now. And they, like the CTO and I and my friend Kale, we're sitting at dinner and me and Kale are trying to like get our 
acceptance to Y Combinator and he had just closed like $20 million from Sequoia Capital. And it was just different. Like there's so many entrepreneurs out there. We didn't end up getting it. A lot of failure along the way. Um, and then after Delivery Dudes, I basically went and built a lot of different products. So I like launched a, a few. One was a, a live entertainment marketplace, which basically took all sorts of different entertainers um, and then tried to match them with people that wanted live entertainment. So we had musicians. Um, and so we did that and we launched it alongside one of my, uh, actually a family member who, who I'd worked for before that did Liquid Death. He did all the branding for this water company. And so I did something with him as a proof of concept, launched it in Tennessee, didn't love the unit economics of it, shut that down. It basically did like one project every six months until I found something that stuck. And I bankrolled it myself. We had a couple of angels come in um, that saw what I did at Delivery Dudes and were like, hey, Parker, like, we're not sure what it is that you're going to do, but like, here's a little bit of cash, which uh, was very nice. Um, no institutional capital. Launched another product called Venue that was solely for musicians. And turns out there's actually something that I'm working on now where we might license out or bro I'm brokering a deal basically for that IP. But we did a bunch of initial shows and again, like just tough market, wasn't in love with it. Didn't wake up every day being like, I'm excited to work on this. And for me, that's huge. Like it was just such a grind and it will be a grind in terms of the work hours, but I was passionate about it. And so it wasn't the problem for me to solve. Um, and so that's kind of sitting on ice now. And I guess this, this last one was really, it just came out of, you know, every evening I found myself just programming and using ChatGPT to kind of be my tutor. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like I can tailor this thing to answer every question the way that I'd like to um, be answered and, and not in a biased way, but like, hey, be, you know, answer this question, but in a short way, because sometimes it's very verbose. Yeah. But I basically was like, this is amazing. Like I can learn any topic. So I learned a bunch of different programming languages and then started tinkering around with teaching, teaching the computer how to do things that I didn't want to do during my day. And so at the time I was doing venue and I was like, okay, like I need to do outreach to venues, the music places and, 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 you know, get all these leads and then write a personal note to each one of them. So that the first line gets them. And then I need to do a follow-up sequence and that takes a lot of time. So I was like, all right, well, if I could program Parker, mini Parker to go do that for me and give it some criteria, build the list, build the emails, don't send them out. till I look at them and tweet a little bit. That'd be cool. So I built that one. And then I was like, Oh, what else could I do? I was like, well, coding takes a while. If I can build something in like four hours that deletes my entire week, like that's ROI positive after the first day. And so yeah. then I was like, all right, like, let me try that. And then I got a basic version of that going. And then I was looking for more ideas. And again, this is just at night. And um, then I built something that basically scanned all these communities in Discord, which is this like nerdy hangout where all the AI guys are. And it like pulled all the information out of all these servers and was giving me all these business use cases. And um, I just ultimately was like, whoa, like this is going to change a lot of things. This is fundamentally changing a lot of different um, ways that people work. It's going to basically 10x human capital to like, I can do a lot more with it. And I know that we're very early on this uh, adoption curve. 
And, you know, you'll have all the, the Luddites that are like, no, we hate it. And it's because they just misunderstand it. And you need to actually like embrace new technologies and, and learn how, how do these things work? And, and if you approach it from curiosity, not fear, then you see how it fits into the picture and you see, oh, like this just helps me. Like this doesn't delete me. And so, yeah, um, yeah, let's talk about that for for a moment, because I think when um, when any new technology or innovation comes around, you know, um, one of the common characteristics of innovation is uh, is it there there comes resistance to innovation. You could you could actually see this in every type of innovation, like in the modern world. I mean, hundreds of years going back. Right. I, I was reading some stories on innovation of the, the when when the automobile was event, invented, right? And you think, well, this is great, right? We could we got a vehicle now that could take us further, much faster, um, and it improves in a sense communication as well, right? It, it it improves mobility. But at the very early days of the automobile, there was a lot of resistance um, for a lot of on a lot of levels, by the way. Uh, one, people were like, why do we need this? We got horses, we got carriages, we got railroads, we got other things. Um, in fact, people, uh, in fact, one one thing that was so interesting in reading about people's resistance to automobiles was people actually had a physical relationship with their horses, right? They didn't want to give up basically what's almost like a pet, not a pet, but kind of like a pet, yeah. right? And um, a living being, in fact, yeah. in fact, this is why... Uh, so, so first of all, w- w- the obvious should be stated. We still refer to cars as having so much horsepower for a reason, right? Because every innovation builds off one. But what, what what caught me even more by surprise in reading about this was all so many of the early American cars were named after different types of horses, right? This is where the Mustang comes from, and Pontiacs, and so on and so on. And it was, and, and in fact, even the early cars would have huge horse-like medallion statue things, like on the hood of the car or on the trunk, just to remind people of the horse. It was like the horse thing. But anyway, I'm going on a tangent about cars and horses. But the whole point is that every time that there's an innovation, people are resistant naturally because people kind of get settled in the way things are, and they necessarily can't figure out or see where things are going. And those things seem to sometimes be very disruptive to their life and maybe to their career at the time. Yeah. There's different uh, players too. It's like when the car came along, everyone's like, Oh, we don't, we don't like this. Like all the people that owned, you know, the entities that owned horses, it's like, well, obviously they don't like it. And then they'll go and lobby against it. You see this happening now. So there's, above the consumer market, then you basically have businesses and then you have like legal. And so mm-hmm. basically like what happens in Washington ultimately like trickles down through businesses and down to consumers. So a lot of interesting stuff happened. They're like, Oh, we don't need, like when the car came along it's like, Oh, we don't need uh, these seat belts. Like we don't need those. Like what the- they try to prove that seat belts actually were bad. Like the car manufacturers, because it costs them money to put the seat belts in. So they like right. paid a bunch of people to say there's a study, but anyways, it's interesting. Yeah, well, so so what's interesting is there is always resistance to innovation, but innovation obviously adds a lot. So there's there's elements of AI that, as you're stating, that might, like you said, 10x human capital. Like 
And and I, I think it's interesting how how you put it. It's not deleting you. It's 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 basically making you more effective and efficient, maybe. Um, but with that being said, AI is a super. Uh, a lot of people will talk about you know how it, it's a super intelligent, right? I mean, it's right there in the word, right? Artificial intelligence. Um, and some people would say that the you know you unleash the machines. And we, we have all these sci-fi movies, right, where the machines take over, the machines go to war, the machines, uh, do, you know, literally do turn on their creators, right? So what, and even Elon Musk, who's a great innovator, has said, I mean, he, he said this several years ago, I remember seeing him on a Joe Rogan podcast, and he was like, I was telling people 10 or 15 years ago, don't go down the AI path, because once we do, once the genie's out of the bottle, it's over, right? Um, what would you what would you say to kind of maybe some of that uh, commentary from people that are really kind of concerned more that in creating and unleashing more AI, we're actually kind of destroying the humanity, the human side of us? It's a good question. I think a uh, couple things there. It's we are the machine. Like we basically are the ones that's making the thing. And I know Elon's talked about that a lot where he like met with uh, Sergey from Google and Sergey um, was like, you know, you care too much about our species or whatever. There's like a big battle there. And then Elon went and started uh, open AI, which ironically is closed AI now. But I think that, you know, we're, we're becoming more and more attached to computers. Like you see it. Like in, uh, I think it was like in the eighties, Josh Wolf from Lux Capital talks about this a lot and I'll just kind of paraphrase what he says. It's basically like, we started with a desktop computer and you know, it's in front of me, there it is. And I can leave it at home. I come back to it and I get all this information. It's the second brain. And then you have the, you know, you fast forward about 20 years and then you get a mobile phone and 08 smartphones and you know, the advent of smartphone, no one leaves it at home. You have anxiety if it's gone, you need it, need it, need it. Um, you're connected all the time. And then next, you know, five years later, you have your Apple Watch and it's telling you all these biometrics and it's getting closer to you. It's on your skin now. And then you have AirPods that are in your ears. And so now you have, you know, Elon's kind of hedging the bet with Neuralink where he's actually going under the skin. And there's things that are outside of the skin that can read the electromagnetic waves to understand what your brain wants to do. And so I think, you know, to the, the doom and gloom idea of this, it's really like, well, who's, who's the captain? <laughs> like, who's the one that's making the thing? And where are the kill switches, right? And it's just kind of understanding that because ultimately these are people that are making these models and we're instructing them on what to do. And yes, they can self-learn at a, at a faster pace than us. But, you know, I just think that it's, it, we're basically <laughs> turning into cyborgs in the next 50 years. Like we're, we're unable to live our lives without the phones now. And it's only been 15 years. Where do we, you know, it's, it sounds crazy, but like, think 25 years from now, 50 years from now, like it's going to be pretty nuts how much technology that's, you know, just directly integrated. Like you see vision pro coming out. It's like, oh, I'm going to have a heads up display that will tell me everything about the stock market that's going on. I'm going to have all this stimulation going on in front of my eyes. And I won't actually want to go back to IRL just yet because I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying this and it'll be interesting to see. I, I just don't think, I don't buy into the, the doom and gloom narrative. I think that Elon does that because it, he's like the best capital raiser ever and the best marketer and the best engineer. 
And so if he can paint a global doom and gloom story ahead of him going and raising, you'll see him raise a significant amount of capital to do his AI startup. That's the hedge that plays into the story that he's told. That's interesting. Well, I think what, what one of the things you just said, though, uh, about we're becoming cyborgs, right? I think that's what kind of scares people who are becoming very uh, fearful of AI. They don't want us to become cyborgs, even though you clearly just articulated that the same person uh, who is like, I don't want to go AI, but then they're like addicted to their phone and they're always on the same thing. Right, right. Um, It's like, yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's interesting, but, but you're, uh, you're leaning into this in terms of, uh, and I, I think you put it on your LinkedIn profile, making AI agents accessible. Uh, can you explain that a little bit and what you're trying to do? Yeah. So ultimately the future of when you go on a website right now, it's built on a lot of technology. If it's really fast, and it feels good, it's probably a half a million dollar website, minimum. But if it feels a little slow, it feels a little janky, it's it's because it was built poorly. It was built by one of these, like, what you see is what you get editors, like a you know, Squarespace or a Wix, and that's fine. Like, it made, a decade ago, it made it accessible for people to build these, um, the, the websites on their own without spending half a million dollars. And so what I'm... My vision right now, what I see from actually being in the trenches and programming every day is you can deliver those excellent web experiences where it's, you know, 10 milliseconds, whether you're in Australia or you're in Zimbabwe or you're in Delray Beach to load up a website. And that's driven by these AI agents being able to code up high performance, half a million dollar websites that don't cost that much. So by bringing these to market, you're able to basically build out the Ferrari of websites at the Honda price. And it's and that's in a sense the way that I see it because I'm in the trenches every day. Is that is that because you're teaching the AI agent um, how to code the way you Parker would code, and then so when you're bringing like a unique idea for like a unique website. Um, the, 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 now the, the AI agent that you have trained, the, the, the Parker clone, if you will, is able to do it faster and quicker and, and, and much, uh, much less expensive. Yeah. You can think of it like consumers don't care what an AI agent is like, they just want an outcome. Like when they're buying something, they're like, will what will this do for me? Mm-hmm. And so they're just going to care. Oh, can I get something that sells me more of my product or service? or gets me more leads, I'll buy that if the price is right. And they'll only buy that if the value that they're getting back seems higher than what they're paying for it. And you're you're gonna make that sale accessible to them and get them that amazing experience by using this AI agent that ultimately coded up the entire thing. And so that's kind of this, this big shift that's happening. A lot of the software that's been written in the last decade has been, you know, this kind of feeling of like software engineers are the new doctors because you have people getting like 500K, a million dollar salary a year to write a bunch of code. But now you have an agent that can write a lot of that and do it really well. And it just takes some tinkering to get it to a point 
Well, yeah, I mean, Francisco wants an amazing website to generate more leads for fearless journeys. He wants to sell merchandise. He wants, he has all these goals and aspirations, but it doesn't make sense for the business at that scale to spend on a, you know, half a million dollar website. But if that same product was able to be at the price point where it made sense, then you do it. So that's, that's really when I say it's making them accessible, it's they're they're dropping the cost of software and making this big paradigm shift. So this seems to be uh, the project you're working on. You you have uh, you have built to some extent a uh, a Parker clone. Uh, tell me, uh, tell us a little. I know you mentioned this before, but uh, where's the clone at now? Where do you want the clone to be? And uh, that when I send when I Francisco send Parker an email, uh, how do I know that actually the real Parkers do? Am I gonna like not know the difference one day that your clone is uh, responding to the emails for me, for you? Yeah, I think. Uh... There's different ones, right? So like I have like a web developer agent that is kind of the, the core one that I'm working on because it'll generate the most impact, I believe. And it will be the thing that shifts the way that most of the internet is written today. Um, there's other people working on sales agents. And I think that a lot of the, like similar to, if you see a tweet that's generated by a bot, it gets a flag. I think that that'll be the same with correspondence on email. And so that'll take a little bit of time to flesh out. But right now, I mean, you see people already building these little widgets in Gmail and you have to kind of like say like, hey, make this response, but don't make it cheesy or like yeah. make it sound like me. And it's like, it's not quite there. So you can kind of tell, you know, like I got some, some I got some, uh, like a pitch deck the other day and I'm looking at it. I'm like, you got to this is so obviously not written by you. <laughs> yeah. That's, oh, that's, that's really, you know, it's funny because a friend of mine was talking about um, creating an AI, maybe it's like an AI agent, like you're talking about um, for PowerPoint slide decks, pitch decks, right? I mean, like no one, no one, no one likes to really put those together. It's, it's uh, very few people like to put those together. And so to say, Hey, you could tell the, the AI to, this is what I want to present. This is, you know, uh, this is the information, this is the the pitch, you know, whatever it is. Um, and and it kind of comes up with at least at least a first draft for you. Tell them to check out tome.app. They just closed their series C for 80 million and they do just that. There you go. Tome.app. Um, <laughs> so uh, how and so that that's an example of the of an answer to the question I'm about to ask you, but um, in, in different kinds of work, uh, you know, people people obviously listening do all different kinds of work. You know, maybe they're an entrepreneur, they're running a business, but I mean, lots of different professions, right? Um, what is maybe one or two things they should be doing right now to learn how to incorporate AI into the work to make themselves more effective, efficient, 10x capital themselves? 100%. I'm glad you asked that question. Write down what you do every day. It's it's kind of crazy. People don't audit their time and it, it'll be humbling. It'll be like, whoa, like, oh, this is what I did today. Okay. And you get a little checklist of what you do. And then when you're on your computer, whatever computer you have, even if it's your phone, get chat GPT up and just stick it on the side. So like if you have like, uh, you know, one max sized screen, have it up at one quarter and then three quarters of what you're doing. And you'll notice like by just sets and reps, it's like exercising. If you have a task come up and you're like, oh, this is the thing I, I do every mm. single day. I know because I wrote it down. Just see how you can ask the GPT. Hey. I'm about to write this email that needs to be catchy. Can you please 
you know, incorporate something that sounds like Steve Jobs <laughs> and you could, you'll start to get creative and it's not going to be good at first, just like anything else, but you're learning how to use the computer. It's like when you first got a computer, you're learning how to type. That's the same thing, except you're prompting. And frankly, like prompting is kind of the new programming language. Like it's, it's the new way of being like, okay, like I got to ask this, this thing a certain way so that I can get the output. Um, and you'll be very surprised. Like I've spoken to people in consulting and it's wild how helpful that is because they can just paste in a spreadsheet and it doesn't have to be formatted and they can ask questions about it. Talk to people in insurance, they're using it. I've talked to people in sales, they're using it. It's just a matter of um, make it a practice and you'll quickly learn how great it is. So speaking of resistance to innovation, um... You know, somebody who does a lot of writing, who is a writer and does a lot of writing, I always value the creativity that comes from the writer. Each individual writer, right, adds their own, you know, I mean, think of like great works of fiction. I'm, uh, I got a book right over here, Tom Wolfe. I've got over here Edgar Allan Poe, right? I mean, those were really specific, interesting, unique people that, that develop something uh, so so different than anybody else in each of their realms. Um, imagine chat GPT for the next Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> uh, what, what does it take away and what does it add, uh, to somebody like that? Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've played around with it a little bit, right. For some things. Um, I can, I can say I did some writing for, for somebody, um, uh, and, and they told me, feel free to use chat GPT and, uh, what would have taken me probably about an hour. You know, it took me about 10 minutes. Mo and most of that was because it was something, it was an area I wasn't as super familiar with writing about. I was going to have to do some research and some things. And basically the chat GPT just took away all, I mean, it was almost like uh, a most important, it was like, it was like another level of Google search, right? It was like, right. write an article about this and this and write it within, you know, 400 words or something like that, right? I looked at it and I was like, damn, that's pretty good. I needed to add some finesse to it. Um, for the audience I wanted it to reach, but it was like 90% there already. Um, that was pretty incredible. But I'm also just kind of thinking of, uh, you know, maybe more like something like a creative work of fiction, you know, uh, that maybe that's, I don't know, that, that's, that seems like, okay, now as a writer, now it's like this is crouching into my territory or my, or my field, right? Think of it as a, um, you're using a power drill instead of a screwdriver. And so... The greats that you mentioned were all excellent remixers, except the corpus of information they had was much smaller than what you have now. So what you can do is you can use it as a tool to brainstorm, to iterate, to refine, to find typos. It's not going to give you that element of humanity that's like that extra touch to be a great, but it just moves the starting line forward. And it's like I said, it's just it's. It's an unfair advantage for those who use it versus those who, you know, shun it. So two, two great things you just said there, I think. Uh, it moves the starting line forward. I think that's a huge thing. Uh, I mean, it's a competitive marketplace out there, right? But it, but it also, your, each of our time is very valuable. And to be able to, you know, just like Google search or Google Maps or something have really moved the starting line forward. I mean, I just remember 19 years ago traveling through Europe and I didn't have a cell phone on me. Oh, it's the worst. And I, <laughs> and I, di and I didn't have, uh, you know, we didn't have Google Maps. We didn't have, yeah. but to think about Map how quest. much, 
how much MapQuest, how much Google Maps, how much all those things have transformed the way we do just one thing, travel, right? It could be traveling down the street, trying to find something. It could be traveling. And it, get, now we have things like Waze and, and that, that navigates us around, you know, even the traffic patterns we, we typically know day to day. Um, but even just getting from places and it's just, and then, and not only it's just from point A to point B, but we could find gas stations along the way and we could find all sorts of things. So in, in the last, to think about in the last 10, 15 years, how much our entire brain has reset in the way we travel just by one basically piece of technology. Uh, I know there's a lot of levels of that technology. So when I, so when I say that, um, you know, but one basically app, you know, that has happened, um, I guess we could look at that a little bit with the chat GPT or AI in general, um, you know, moving the starting line forward, but kind of another thing you said there was gives you a competitive advantage. And, um, so if you are not currently using this, the idea here is to just, I mean, I think you had a great thing, put it on the side of your screen, learn it, see how it can track some of the things that, especially the things we do repetitively over and over, um, that it could start to do those things for us. Yeah. You don't realize how much, non-creative work you do and that's the stuff that sucks <laughs> and so yeah. you know you're like trying to figure out like how do i get rid of that stuff like i want to if i have eight hours of my day that i'm working and there's like three that aren't that great like you bet i'm trying to get rid of that and this is a good way to start doing that so uh parker you're you're creating uh you're, you're really making ai agents uh accessible for people i know you do uh, you mentioned some other things you do. You build websites for people. You're also helping college grads learn about the industry by uh, by sharing, you know, your content about everything you do. Um, so, if people, um, what 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 can people hire you for, and how can they how can they uh, uh, find you? Yeah, I think um, you can just go to my website, ParkerX.com, and yeah, I open sourced everything that. I learned about product management and all this, this crazy world on my YouTube channel. So you can check that out too. And if you're looking for something a little more in depth, if you need help with, uh, with your product or technology, engineering stuff, just hit me up on my website. That's great, Parker. Uh, so I'll also put that in the show notes. So if people um, are listening to this on Spotify or Apple or any other podcast platform, you can find it in the show notes. And if you're actually just listening and you want to watch, well, this is on video as well, so this will be on the Agents of Innovation YouTube channel. Uh, now, Parker, I got to ask you one question. Uh, first of all, I want to say congratulations. I know you were recently engaged. Um, oh, thanks. And uh, is your uh, is your fiance going to be dealing with with the IRL, Parker, or the? Yes, uh... <laughs> yes, of course, of course. It, I mean, the Not whole the... purpose is to have more of your own time back, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, um, okay, great. Well, uh, Parker, I just want to say thanks so much. Uh, for being an agent of innovation and perhaps <laughs> creating uh, right. other agents and making making AI agents uh, accessible for more people. Um, this podcast name may be changing in the future uh, to, <laughs> to, think, to think about agents in a different way, but, uh, but you're doing incredible work. And I just want to say thank you for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks, Francisco. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>